Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remaining there until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at um, these witnesses to the, res- to the birth of Jesus Christ. We've wanted to try, our intention has been to kind of get an unvarnished view of what this Christmas means and what a better place to go than eyewitnesses, those who can see things as they were. They can report it as it was. And so we've been looking at these witnesses and what their testimony has been. So we've looked at Joseph in the first week, and we learned from Joseph that the mission of Jesus was to be a Savior, that his name would be Jesus, and he would save his people from their sins, that Christ came to reconcile us to God. And then we looked at the wise men last week, and we learned from the wise men that, that in fact, Jesus Christ is worthy of worship. And not only worship, but worship of the whole world. Jesus isn't some tribal deity that kind of serves a small people group, but all the nations, all the peoples will come and worship him. Well, this week we have a different kind of witness, Herod. He's a hostile witness. He's not favorable to the Christ child. This is a darker side of Christmas that Jesus Christ, even in his infancy, will face hostility and hatred. And yet, even in the darkness of this story, there is great hope for us. There's great hope for us in Christmas because we see in this journey story the sovereignty of God. I mean, there's three legs to this journey, right? There's, there's kind of three Uh, legs of going to Egypt, remaining in Egypt, and then returning to Israel. And in each one of those legs, in each one of those steps, you see this unfolding plan of God, that, that God is moving this thing forward in the midst of the evil. So there's great hope for us, because in the first thing we see in this in this journey to Egypt, 
you see that Jesus is going to be a deliverer. That he's come to save a people and to deliver them to God. You're going to see that in verses 13 to 15. In that, in that horrible scene in Ramah, you see that Jesus is going to confront evil and ultimately defeat it. And then in that last section, when they return, you see that Jesus has come to save his enemies. I mean, the people that were opposed to him, he has come to save. So we'll look at each step of this journey and try to draw the hope that we see. And, and, and Herod becomes the foil for us because he's opposing this all along the way, and yet God is using him all along the way. So in the first one, you see Jesus has come to deliver. So let me remind you of the story from last week. Uh, Herod sent the Magi to find out where the Christ child was. Of course, he did it under false pretense. He said, I'm going to do it. I want you to find the child so I can go worship him with you. Of course, we know that he was lying. The Magi didn't know it. And of course, God, God knew it. And so God gave Joseph, uh, Joseph a dream, of course, to, to head to Egypt. Now, think about this for a minute. You've got to imagine Joseph and Mary before this were at probably a high point. They had both been visited by angels saying about the unique nature of this child. They both had received the witness of the shepherds that had been in the fields that had seen the angels. They both were there when the Magi came with gifts and worship. So they probably were at a real high point in terms of all that God was going to do. And then all of a sudden, this, this, this high point is just shattered. You know, Joseph gets a dream that the king of Judea is going to murder your son. He's going to kill the Christ child. And this is somewhat true to form. I think it's true to life. You know, when things are going well, you got a promotion, you have a new relationship, and, and then all of a sudden the stilts are taken right out of you. Something just comes in and destroys it. Someone gets cancer, you have an infidelity, a relationship goes sour. I mean, you can imagine the highs and the lows that they were experiencing. And, and yet J Joseph gives us a great example. He responds immediately and obediently. He takes, he rises, takes up the child and heads to Egypt. Now, this is no small deal. I, I mean, he had to leave at night and travel, which was always dangerous because of the bandits on the road, as well as animals. It's tough to navigate. And they probably had to walk there. Now, Egypt would be between 70 and 90 miles away. I know probably in your crash scene or nativity scene, you have some sort of Mary on a donkey. I don't know that she traveled by donkey. I don't know that he could have gotten a donkey at night. Most people walked, and it would have been three to four days. She had newly given birth. The child was, was still obviously very, very young, and so they had to walk that way. Can you imagine? And, and they, were, they were forced to take up the life of a refugee. Now, let me remind you, you know, when Carol and I served overseas, we served refugees for two years. It's a, it's a very difficult life. You have to leave your country. You have to enter a new country learn a new language, you have no contacts, you have, you have no money, you can't get a job. It's very, very difficult. You've left behind everything you've known. And here Joseph and Mary, with the child that will save the world, are forced to flee. I mean, you could ask, has God's plan gone sideways? I mean, what has happened to God's plan? I mean, should we be, should we be nervous at this scene of the story? Well, Matthew is wanting us to not feel nervous at all. He says, no, 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 no. This was to fulfill 
what the prophet Hosea said. Now, Hosea was a prophet hundreds and hundreds of years before. And when Hosea was prophesying to Israel, he was talking to a people of God who were beginning to wander away from God. And he was saying to them, out of Egypt I've called my son. He's reminding them to look back. Now, this is the people of Israel hundreds of years before Christ. And he's saying to them, look at what God did. God delivered you out of Egypt. He saved you from slavery and death. By his own mercy, he drew you out to be sons and daughters. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. He's referring to this massive exodus where God saves a people for himself. It's an act of sheer grace. Well, how does this apply to the story of Jesus? Well, remember, when we talk about prophecy in Scripture, a prophecy can be this direct fulfillment. A virgin will give birth, and hence a virgin gave birth. It can be a predictive future fulfillment. But not all prophecy is that way. Some prophecy is more of a pattern, we say. Theologians call it a type. In other words, there's an event in the life of Israel that will, that will reach its fullest meaning in the life of Jesus. Let me give you an example. So in the Old Testament, we're told, Sacrifice a lamb for the forgiveness of sins. Over and over, the people would sacrifice a lamb for the forgiveness of their sins. When Jesus comes, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So all of those were types. All of those things were helping prepare so that when Jesus came, we can say, Ah, now I understand. That's what the pattern was for. With the same thing with Hosea. So coming back to the story, Hosea is saying, out of Egypt I call my son. What he's saying here is that this massive exodus in Israel, the massive exodus from Egypt of Israel, deliverance to become the people of God, now it's fulfilled in Christ. That with the coming of Jesus, he's now a newer and better Moses. He's leading a greater exodus. We're not being delivered from slavery to a foreign power, but we're being delivered from sin, shame, and guilt. All those things that separated us from God, we're delivered from those things now that we can become the people of God. This is the hope that we have. And if you're a Christian here, this is exciting news for you. I mean, the fact that you have been delivered, that this child, in this child, rests the hope of our deliverance. The the guilt and the shame and the sin and the way that we've walked that just brings deep regret to her, it's been forgiven. It's been like the moral delete button. As far as the east is from the west, so your sins have been removed. This is why we rejoice that Christ would come to deliver us from that. We can't deliver ourselves. No human being can come and give us a, a philosophy of life to deliver. One has to come from above to deliver us to one who is above. This is the nature of conversion. When we talk about conversion, when we talk about being born again, we're just talking about that, that we've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness to which we've all been born, and we've been delivered to the kingdom of the Son that he loves, Christ himself. This is why we want to talk about this you know, Christmas. When we have these unique times to kind of spend time and focus on Christ, let this be a topic of your conversation about how the mercy of God has changed you. How were you converted? 
Have you shared that with someone? To give them hope of the power of God to change. What has changed in your life? Do you ever look back and see the changes that he has brought? The deliverances, overcoming of sin and shame and guilt in your life? This idea that we've been forgiven by God, do you practice that with others? Do you forgive your spouse? Do you forgive your children? Do you walk into true forgiveness where they feel freed from what they have done against you? That you're not holding it against them. You're not bringing it back up again. This is how we kind of celebrate Christmas. Walk in the forgiveness, extend the forgiveness that we've received. But this message isn't just for us, it's really for all of us. I mean, even if you're not a Christian, you know, we all have that nagging doubt of, I know that I'm not who I should be. I know that I can't seem to become who I need to be. And we all have this nagging doubt. And, and, and there's, you know, as one theologian said, we, you know, we're all pursuing some salvation project. We all want to be delivered, even if you're not a Christian. Maybe you're just interested in Christianity. But we all want to have freedom from guilt. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. We want to have meaning and value in life. We want to matter, and that's a good thing. And, and normally what we do is we try all the things of this world to find that kind of meaning and love. We do it through success in business. We do it through relationships. We do it through sex. We do it through, through power plays. We want something transcendent meaning. But the warning is this, uh, that there is nothing in the created order that can satisfy those who have been made in the image of God. And every single person, whether you're a Christian or not in this room, you are made in the image of God. You cannot be satisfied by the things of this world because you've been made by one outside of this world. So one has to come into our world to deliver us to God. And this is what it means being a Christian. Being a Christian is finally coming to that place that I, really, I can't save myself, that my hopes and dreams for life cannot be found in this world. It has to be in Christ. And so it's, we turn by faith to Christ. We turn by faith to Christ, confessing our sins and seeking to follow the one who has come to save us. So that's the first leg of this journey. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. The hope we have in Christmas, he, is, he has delivered us from sin. He has delivered us from shame. And now we're the people of God. We're being made. We're being fashioned. As I said of the new members, those few words with the new members, we're being fashioned into a people of God. We're not there yet. It's an incremental move through life. That's why we need each other. Okay, the second point in this passage, and you see it in 16 to 18. And this is where Jesus has come to confront evil. Now, in this part of the journey, they're remaining in Egypt. But there is an unspeakable tragedy going on in Bethlehem. It's unspeakable. You know, Herod felt tricked. It is ironic that the one who works in deceit gets angry over being deceived. But, but this is kind of the nature of Herod. We talked about him a little bit last week. Herod was appointed king of Judea in 37 BC. And uh, he's called Herod the Great. Uh, and he was called Herod the Great because he was legendary in his administrative abilities and building capacities. I mean, he built theaters, he built, uh, he built stadiums, he even built the temple of God, you know, rebuilt the temple. And he was incredibly gifted at building. He was a military strategist. He was very savvy in terms of his political acumen. But, but he was not a great man. He was married to ten wives. Uh, he had incredible jealousies and fears. 
He had a murderous streak. One time a conspiracy was enacted to try to assassinate him. He killed all ten conspirators, conspirators, and he killed all of their families. He was murderous, as I mentioned last week. He killed his favorite wife. He drowned his brother-in-law and then had a state funeral and wept publicly to show how of a gracious man he was. As I said, he had murdered his mother-in-law, murdered two sons. Two days before he died, he murdered a third son. And, and he instructed his sister, on the day that he dies, he wants the heads, these Jewish no, nobility, he wanted certain from every family, he wanted them arrested and murdered on the day of his death so that Israel would mourn genuinely that he passed. He was a psychopath. So he's enraged when the Magi don't come back. And so he orders that all those boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, are killed. Now remember, he ascertained when the star rose, he was trying to find the birth date, and then he threw the margin wide enough so that this child might not escape. He fears his, thr his throne is threatened, and so he murders them. So soldiers went house to house, killing every male child. Bethlehem was not a large town, but most estimate there was probably at least a dozen or two babies. Now, can you imagine the grief? I mean, can you imagine the heartache? You'd take that to your grave. You'd never overcome that. If someone ever said, you know, oh, you'll have another one, you'd rip their eyes out. These situations lead us to ask questions like, why does God allow this? I mean, how does this happen? Where is God in all of this? Well, it's interesting. Matthew doesn't try to directly answer the question. He again turns back to Scripture. And he references Jeremiah and this situation with Rachel. Rachel is the matriarch of Israel. And her weeping because her children are no more. What's he talking about here? Well, he's referencing a situation in about 450 B.C. when Babylon, a country to the east, came and conquered, destroyed Jerusalem. They took the, the people of Jerusalem captive. and They took them to Ramah, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem. And there they sold them into slavery. They separated children from parents, and they separated husbands from wives, and they were dispersed throughout the kingdom of Babylon. I mean, that's incalculable sorrow. And he's referencing this to remind the people of the suffering. But if you were to go back and read that passage in Jeremiah, you would find that Jeremiah continues to talk. It's set within Jeremiah 31 to 34, which are called the, it's called the Book of Consolation. And here's what you'd read. Jeremiah says, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. So in the midst of this despair, Jeremiah introduces this hope. Don't, no, no, God's not finished yet. Do not weep because God's going to bring you back. He's going to restore. He's going to redeem. Now, in fact, we know that they were restored, right? Israel returned with Zerubbabel. Nehemiah, they built the walls. But that was a foretaste of the return from exile. In other words, 
The reason that Matthew references this is he says that though you're weeping over this great and genuine tragedy, this child is going to lead us back from exile to God. That hope is resting on the shoulders of this child. That he's going to, he's going to work backward the evil that's done. He's going to restore men and women to God. He's going to, he's going to soften our souls and the suffering we've endured so that we're going to rejoice again with God. There's hope in this child, even though we live in the midst of great tragedy. See, any time the nation of Israel was in exile, it was a terrible time to live. You're outside your homeland. You're outside your language. You're outside of everything that you know and love. To return from exile is, is deliverance. And that's what Christ has come to do. So Matthew wanted his readers to know, this child is going to bring us back from exile but not just to a homeland, a, a piece of, of land, but he's going to bring us back to God. And we're going to see God. And the returning of the exile is to cause our mind to think of going back to the garden. We're going to go back to be with God again. Now, if you're here and <clears throat> you're not a Christian, the subject of evil and God always comes up. Well, if God were good, why is there evil? And the fact that there's evil means I can't believe in God. Well, I, if you're not a Christian, I would just ask you to slow down for just a minute on that logic. Because evolution, technology, and scientism do not help us in the problem of evil. And to remove God from the equation, that doesn't help. I think that intensifies the problem. To say that there is evil in this world, therefore there is no God, I would think intensifies the problem. Because if you remove God from the equation, what do you have? You have a random universe. You have a world that has no sovereign leadership at all. You should live a very frightened life. You ought to live a life of great fortress building because you don't know what will happen. Think about that. Now, Jeremiah and Matthew utilizing that verse, it doesn't untangle the problem of evil for us perfectly, but it does begin to untie it. it. It does begin to show us that evil won't have the last word. That's the point here, that Jesus has come as a king in righteousness and holiness, but not to establish his throne immediately, but to lay down his life. He has come to enter evil and to transform it, that through the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, he's beginning a new work and a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. That is where the hope lies. Now, we saw a picture of this. If you continue reading through the Gospel of Matthew, you see the miracles. What are those miracles for? It's not simply to help people for a short duration of time. He gives sight to the blind. They're going to die again. They were snapshots of the kingdom that he's bringing. He's showing us little foretastes of what his world and kingdom will be like. That Jesus Christ has come to establish that. Now, he hasn't established it in fullness. That's why our best life is not now. It is not now at all. I mean, in this life, we will have trouble. Christians have marriages that we struggle. We have children that are disobedient. We have jobs that sometimes become insecure. Jesus said this would happen. He said in John 16, he said, in this world, you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Our hope is not in this life, becoming perfectly fine. Our hope rests in one who will come back to consummate and destroy evil once and for all. Our hope rests in Christ, who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. 
All mourning, all sickness, all sadness will be passed. That's the hope that we have. And that's just pictured in this little baby. He's going to grow up. He's going to defeat evil by suffering under it, transforming it, and then delivering us out of it. Many of you I know are struggling right now with great pain, injustice, decisions made by other people that, not, that were not yours, and yet you're suffering. I would just encourage hope in God, that, that you would look to God in Christ, that you would see in Christ that our hope isn't for a certain change of events per se. Our hope is in one who can bring good out of evil, who can restore. It's like the, it's like the pain that a mother goes through in giving birth. The pain is genuine, the pain is real, but the pain is just, it's just destroyed in the pleasure that you have in the child that you're holding in your arms. That, that's what it's gonna be like. It's gonna be like a rolling back that we're gonna have. In fact, if you've read uh, Lord of the Rings, the trilogy and Return of the King, Sam, uh, one of the main players is before Gandalf, the wizard. And he asks the question, he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? That's what Christ will do. The sadness in your life will be rolled back and it will be as if it's untrue. That's the hope that we have. Look at the third part of the journey with me. Because there's a return now to Israel. An angel appears to Joseph again and says that Herod and those who sought this child are dead. They're dead. They're, they're out of the way. And so Joseph makes the return journey back. And then in the journey he's making back, he receives another visit from another angel that says that Archelaus is still reigning. He was the son of Herod. He was a chip off the old block, as cruel as Herod. And so he goes to Galilee, which had a different governor that was not so cruel. It seems as if Joseph is making the moves here. It shows the human responsibility with divine sovereignty, because though Joseph went to Nazareth, what it says is he did this because God, he would be called a Nazarene. Now what does that mean? To be called a Nazarene. By the way, if you were to look for this verse in the Old Testament, you won't find it. It's not there. But I want you to notice what Matthew says. He says, the prophets said this. So it's plural. So there isn't a specific promise or a specific verse that speaks to this. But what Matthew is doing is he's saying that generally speaking among all the prophets, that these prophets spoke about him being called a Nazarene. What does that mean? Well, to be called a Nazarene was a term of really contempt. Nazareth was an obscure town. It was in the hills. It was off the trade routes. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the Talmud. It's not mentioned in, by Josephus. You know, if you remember Nathaniel asking, he says, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth when he heard of Jesus' ministry? It was like just a, a know-nothing town. And yet God ordained that he be born there. Why? Well, remember what Matthew's doing here. Matthew is, is really trying to uh, speak to a Jewish audience that wonders, <clears throat> why would the Messiah have been rejected? If God's going to send a gift to the world, why wouldn't they have accepted it? And, and what Matthew's saying is, God ordained that he would be rejected. God ordained <clears throat> 
that he would not be accepted. He would be scorned. He would be made. He would be mocked. He would be rejected. God ordained that. Why? It was to show the surpassing kindness of God that he has sent a son to die for those who hate him. That he has sent a son to die for enemies. He hasn't sent a son to those who will naturally love him, but those who will naturally reject him, which all of us have done. In fact, this is what the <clears throat> prophet Isaiah says. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one for whom men hide their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace with his wounds. We are healed, but all of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What God is doing here is he's showing to us that I'm, the grace that God has to save is far greater than we can ever imagine because he, he sent him to be rejected so that his love would be revealed as beyond measure. The takeaways from this leg of the journey, if you will, is simply this, <clears throat> that God is sovereign over history. If you've been with us over these past three weeks, five different times Matthew has written, this is to fulfill, this is to fulfill. God is directing history. He sends angels, he gives warnings, he makes announcements. He does things as he wants to do them. Herod, it looks like he was making, and he was. He was making his own personal choices of wickedness. And yet God bends his evil to accomplish his plans. So Herod sets out to destroy the child, and what does he do? He fulfills the very plans of God and what he does. Because God superintends over these decisions. God's sovereign over every evil, every government, every person. We can rest with God. Even the, the political and the geo, or the, at least the geopolitical chaos of our world, we can rest. Listen to what Psalm 2 says. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. There is no outwitting of God. There is no fear for the Christian. God is sovereign. Even in the midst of evil, he's accomplishing purposes that while we may not see it in real time, we will worship him and thank him for it. All things are moving to accomplish the very salvation purposes that he set apart from the beginning of all creation. But not only do we take that away, we also take away the fact that there's a warning here. There's a promise, but there's a warning. And the warning is this. The warning is this, that there is a day of reckoning com coming to all of us. I don't want to be sounding like one of those fire and brimstone preachers, but notice what it says in the text. For Herod and those who sought the death of the child are dead. Those is plural. It's not just Herod. It's those. It's the guards. It's all those conspiring to kill this Christ child. God killed them. They're dead. All of them. These young soldiers, they're all dead. There's a, there's a day of reckoning that we see here. God's bringing a measure of judgment even in this time. We kind of see it in a way like all the stuff, as I referenced last week, all these uh, 
people in authority, primarily men in authority, exercising uh, their power over women for their own sexual pleasure, you see a measure of judgment. I mean, you cannot read the paper without another name being brought up. That's temporal judgment. It's not a full judgment, but it's a foretaste. And that's what death is for us. When we see people die, we're to be reminded that God is the judge of all. He's sovereign over all. J.C. Ross says, Death is a mighty leveler and can take any mountain out of the way of Christ's church. The Lord lives forever. His enemies are only men. They're flesh. We deal with men and women of flesh and blood. Think about it. All of us have that day. It says that there are days appointed for us. So there is a day of reckoning for all of us. Now, by grace, because we see the mercy of God, the day of reckoning for us can also be a day of amnesty. It can be a day of freedom. And, and that's what I would appeal to you. If, if you're not a Christian, I appeal to you, consider your life. Consider uh, the way you've lived. Consider the efforts that you've made to change. I would encourage you to, to consider Christ, to speak with somebody next to you about your need to be delivered, your need to be redeemed, your need to be rescued. That's what Christmas is about. It's a rescue mission. And for those of you who are Christian, this is a time of rejoice because the day of reckoning for you will be a day of amnesty. Well done, my good and faithful servant. We have passed out of judgment. We've passed into life. Life now. Neither, neither life nor death, nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height nor depth, nor anything else will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord because he has rescued you. You're safe. You're free. You're forgiven. He loves you. Point of great rejoicing for us. So we see in this story, it's a darker side of Christmas, but, but we see that Christ has come to deliver. Out of Egypt I've called my son. We see that he's come to confront and defeat evil. That in this child there is yet hope in the midst of this exile in which we're currently living. And he's also come to save his enemies. We sang about that. Thank you, Jesus. I once was an enemy, but now I'm seated at your table. That's us. That's the Christian. We're now seated at his table. He's now our father. We're now adopted. He now loves us. So let's take a minute now and, and just take these few moments and perhaps you can, you can give thanks to God for what he's done. Or perhaps you can be thinking about how you need to consider Christ and his coming in the flesh to save. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.